Welcome everyone to today's class, Valentine's Day. Unfortunately, we're not going to be discussing anything to do with Valentine's Day. Any questions from anyone pertaining to this subject? So we're on uh, chapter 16 of this book, Vedanta Treaties. And we're talking use and abuse of religion. We're discussing the term religion. Last class, we explained that religion was a technology, a science that educates a human being of his true being. What is your true being? Anyone? What is your true being? What is your true being, Damesh? Yourself. Self, which is what? Uh, God. God. You are Brahman. You are God. The God principle. The self. Brahman. That is who you are. But, due to our ignorance, we have forgotten that. We have forgotten that we are this higher being, God principle. Tatvamasi means that thou art, theme of Bhagavad Gita. Tatvamasi, that thou art, you are that art, that God principle. So this practice of religion correctly results in you joining back and becoming one with your true being. You've lost that connection. Practice of religion takes you back to your Godhead. And what separates us from our true self? What separates us from that? What is that ignorance? What separates us from? Anita? Our desires of us. Your desires. Your worldly desires takes you away from Understanding that you are God. You're more interested in the world than you are. God equals human beings minus desires. That's the equation. God equals human minus desires. So the practice of religion helps us to reduce our desires. The barrier between us and our true being. Once the bulk of our desires are removed, then through the practice of meditation, we attain that oneness. The experience is called self-realization. You have now realized and become one with the self, your true being, your Godhead, Atman, Brahman, 
This experience is this experience is similar to the dreamer transforming into the waker. Just to give you some idea, the experience is similar to the dreamer transforming into the waker. It's similar experience. So self-realized souls have said. So positive religion, what we covered last week is, what is positive religion? In a nutshell, what is positive religion? Yeah, Rabbi. Anything that takes you back to yourself, the pure consciousness, work towards that. Can't hear you. How does it do that? Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah I can do. Oh. How does it do that? Positive religion is what? You're right, but I need a bit more information. Yeah, uh, Meghna? Is it knowledge that um, helps you reduce your desires? Knowledge helps. So any practice that allows you to reduce your desires is positive religion. That's it. It may be knowledge, maybe anything. Any practice that helps you reduce your worldly desires we're going to be covering a bit of this today, is positive religion. And because we're made up of three equipments, body, mind, and intellect, we, those are the three equipments as a human being we have. Three disciplines are given to us. The Lord has given us three disciplines. In the Gita, he says... To help reduce our desires, the three practices are bhakti yoga, part of devotion, jnana yoga, part of knowledge, karma yoga, part of action. Three practices, because we have three aspects of our personality, three equipments, the body, mind, intellect. So a spiritual seeker must take up these three practices in different proportions. How would you decide on a proportion? How would you decide how much bhakti, how much knowledge, how much karma you must do? What's it based on? How would you decide? Ah, Vanita? Based on your vasanas, what you um, what you're direct, sort of directed to, I suppose. Based on your nature. Based on your nature, you will decide which aspect of those three you will take up and in what proportion. And if you administer that correctly, the, the proportion of those three disciplines then your desires are reduced and you would eventually reach that goal. That goal of self-realization as confirmed by Lord Krishna himself. We covered that last week. Any questions? So this is positive religion. Whatever enables you to reduce your desires. Any questions? Before we begin, what is negative religion? 
Yeah, does that make sense to everyone? Is it clear to everyone? Great. Whatever practice you're doing, ask yourself, is it helping me reduce my worldly desires? So in today's class, we discuss negative religion. That's the next topic. What would then, let's say, be classed as negative religion? Yeah, Dharmesh. So it's going to be the opposite of positive. Anything that doesn't help you reduce your desires, quite simply. Any practice that doesn't bring you to yourself or question. Not help us to reduce our desires. Any practice that does not help us to reduce our desires or takes us away from that divinity, the self, can be classed as negative religion. And we're going to discuss that today. What people practice in the world in the guise of spirituality. We're going to go through that. So we then will have an understanding of what is positive and what is negative when it comes to spiritual development. Now remember, whatever we discuss today, it's all to do with spiritual development. Does it make me become more divine? Does it help me to reach that goal? Okay. We will start with today's class. Maybe if we can read the first paragraph, please. Negative religion. Most spiritual practitioners employ religion for mere worldly gains. Use religious means to serve their personal ends with no thought of eradicating their desires, no attempt at spiritual evolution, no idea of attaining the ultimate state of enlightenment. People in every faith go to religion just to satisfy their material, emotional or intellectual demands. Their approach is purely alterian, selfish and self-centered. All that is negative in character. What is that paragraph saying? What is that paragraph saying? Yeah, Dimple? They're using um, religious religion to get money off people by saying, if you do this, then, and you give me money, I'll do this for you, and you'll gain what you want, whether that be money or whatever they've come for that they desire the most, that they say they'll do it if for a, a ritual, a ceremony. Anybody else wants to add that, uh, anything to that? Yeah, Dhamesh. The way I understood it is, it's more for personal gain, for personal enrichment, not in a positive way, but in a negative way for riches and stuff. Anybody else would like to add anything to that? Mere worldly gains. They practice religion for worldly gains. Yeah, Vagita. Saying that it's for materialistic things that you're praying for, things that you want to maybe you focus yeah. on your desires, isn't it really? That you want yeah. to do. 
So what he's saying is most people go to church, temple, mosque, or their place of prayer to pray for something, to ask for something. Most people practice praying religious activities in that way. If I pray for it, then God will give it to me. God will make it happen. I need a nice partner for my daughter to get married. I will do a special prayer, put some special, give some money. My new business I'm starting, I want it to be successful. Pray for health. I have an illness. My partner has an illness. My child has an illness. Let me pray for that. Let me pray for peace and happiness. Even if it's peace and happiness for the world, all the people in the world, you're still asking for something. We're not saying this is wrong. What we're saying is people wrongly believe this to be religious. This is the point we're making. If people do this and it satisfies them, there's nothing wrong with it. But they wrongly believe this to be religious. This is not spiritual. It has nothing to do with spiritual development. This is the point we're making. One minute. We're not condemning them. They are innocent. They don't realize what they're doing. It's not their fault. But we're just evaluating what's happening in the world. Any questions? When did I get a question? So where does this aspect come from in the beginning where we must feel like we have to ask? It must be somewhere it's come from where people now all over the world are doing the same thing. Why? Because people are more interested in fulfilling desires, worldly desires, than spiritual aspect. They've lost that understanding of what spirituality is. They haven't been taught it. This is the problem. Lack of education. So there are very few people um, who has the ability to understand this knowledge. You can't pick up the Gita or the Upanishads and read it and understand it and come to a conclusion. It's very difficult. It's quite terse. So this is the reason. And uh, people's uh, minds are relatively attracted to the world. You see. And religion itself is now marketed, you know, church. Uh, I mean, one of the richest religious uh, movements is the Vatican. You know, religion is marketed now. Even in uh, India, how many temples there are? Some of the temples are the richest. They have more richness, more wealth than the government. You know, so it's it's just gone pear shape. You know the way it's marketed. People have lost the fact that it's for spiritual development. Yeah. So what what do you say? People are confused. Uh, offering like you think you're giving something. You know, like how we when we go to the temple or wherever we go, we give an offering. Do you think people have confused that idea because you're offering something, you expect something back? Is that what the confusion yeah. is? It's a barter. You're bartering with God. I'll give you this, you give me that. This is how people have taken it now. 
like I said, they're innocent. They don't realize what they're doing. It's lack of education. Now, also, we're saying it's this realm is Kalyug now, which means it's people's minds are at the worst, at the grossest. So this is the state of the world and spirit and religion. We're trying to understand it. Any, any other questions? Simple. You think it's greed. So people think if they give more, they'll get more in return. That's up to the individual. They, it depends on their relationship with their God. Their God is all giving. The more they offer, they may feel that the more they will get. I will feed a hundred children, but God, give me this. You know, in their mind, they feel that if I give, I will get back. Nothing wrong. That's that's how they they think. That's nothing. Wrong. We're not saying it's wrong. We're saying it's not spiritual development. This is what we're saying. Yeah, people will continue and let them, and that's fine. It gives them some solace. That's fine. But we're saying it's not spiritual development. It's negative religion. Yeah, we're not condemning them. Everything is for personal worldly gains. Nothing more. Selfishness. My God. This is my God. Grace of God. My grace of my God. That I'm in this place. There's nothing wrong with, you know, he be, they believe that. And God has given them everything. They believe this to be religion. This relationship. Anyone disagree? Dermish. It all depends on what your the reason you do it. So like if you a ritual and you don't want nothing from it, and you just want peace and harmony from it. For yourself, then you're doing it for the right reason. It's what you go in for. It's like I say, if I do this, I get this. But if I do this and I want nothing from it, then it's a positive thing. Um, depends if it's reducing your desires. By doing that action, going to a place of worship, saying I want nothing and I'd like to pray. Is it helping you reduce your desires? You'd be the judge of that. I can't tell you yes or no. That's, down, that's up to you and your relationship with your prayer. I'm not here to say judge. But what we're saying is that most people believe this to be religion. And most people ask for something. Even if it's for peace and harmony for yourself, you're still asking for something. Even if it's world peace, you're still asking for something. It doesn't matter what it is. Ruby. One class of people go on pilgrimages, conduct religious ceremonies, perform various rituals for their material well-being. They pray for riches, higher status, better health, and other mundane benefits. Their motives rise no higher than that. It's all worldly gains, as we said. You know, in India, we go, there's a temple in every street corner. Yeah. In a way, it's good because it reminds you of God. 
it reminds you of that higher being. But we just use it as a place just to quickly put some money in, do a prayer that today my day goes well or whatever I'm going to do today, it's, it becomes successful, etc., etc. We don't just go there and pray. Majority of the people. So there are three classes of people that practice this. And we're going to go through each one. Is that clear to everyone? Is there any other questions, clarifications? Okay. So one class go to pilgrimages, conduct religious ceremonies for material gain, riches, better health, other mundane benefits. Their motives rise no higher than that. Then there's a second class of people. A second class of person seeks religious asylum for emotional solace. They are the ones who are mentally disturbed, who are not able to handle their life's problems and go through sorrow and suffering. Such people approach religious avenues to ease their mental woes and gain peace. They also have ulterior motives with no higher goal in mind. They are selfish in nature, far from being religious. The second class of pers person. So the first class, material benefits. Second class, go to temple, church, mosque. Emotional comfort. It makes them feel emotionally calm and feel good. Gives them a form of peace and happiness. It fulfills their emotional needs. This is still selfishness, they're saying. We're not condemning it. It's better that they're in that environment where they can feel that. But it's not being religious. This is the whole point we're, uh, we're trying to make. This isn't being religious. They can't handle the problems in life. So they, they, they practice this. They go to these um, places of worship. It gives them solace. There's practically no spiritual urge to realize the self. They don't realize what they're doing. There's no goal. Most religions are like this. Like I said, we're not criticizing them, yeah? These practices are limited. That's the point we're making. It doesn't help you develop spiritually, reduce your desires. Any clarifications on that? People's emotional needs. Okay. The third class of people. People in the third category pursue religion to satisfy mere intellectual curiosity to clear their doubt and confusion about the world. They consume various literature which provides them a satisfaction to their general query. No sooner they find their intellectual solutions than their pursuit of religion ends. Their subtle intellect remains dormant. It lacks the strength or conviction to dwell deeper into the quintessence of life. 
they have practically no spiritual urge to realize the Supreme Self within, attain spiritual liberation. The third category person has an intellectual interest, is an intellectual person. It's either material benefit, emotional needs, or intellectual curiosity. They may read the Gita, the Upanishads, the Bible. They may read the Quran, and they can explain it to you. But they only, they only do it to satisfy their thirst for knowledge. Who is God? What is God? What is this world? They want to know. So they have the knowledge, but what's the difference? They have the knowledge. What is the difference though? Yeah, Agna? No wisdom. No wisdom. No application. They have the knowledge, but no application. They're not applying what they're learning. Why is that? Why are they not applying what they're learning? Any idea? Yeah, Deepa. Because they're reading the scriptures just for their ego. Yeah. The ego stopping them from gaining the knowledge. They have the knowledge. They have a true understanding. They can take a class. But one thing missing. Huh? Yeah, whenever. They don't have the desire to become to the self. Exactly. Exactly. No desire for spiritual development. A desire to understand and gain the knowledge, but no desire for spiritual development. So they can't apply it. It may massage their ego. They can go and say, hey, I read the Upanishads. I read the Gita. I can tell you what this verse is. They can maybe be able to recite it off heart, but that's it. Desires remain the same, no reduction. So all three categories, they pray to God. They're all praying for worldly benefits. None of these are spiritual practices. So who is a spiritual person? Who is a spiritual person then? Who is a spiritual person? If these, all these three categories are not spiritual people, who are spiritual people? Is it someone who is self-realized? Self-realized is the goal. That's where spirituality will take you to it, absolutely. But you are a spiritual person right now if you take this knowledge you apply it and you help reduce your desires. My goal is to reduce my desires. This is why I've learned. Then now you are being spiritual. Yeah? And if you carry on that, the goal will be that you'll reach that state. So a person who seeks the truth, the truth of life, who seeks the truth of life, finds the truth and then pursues it. This is a spiritual person. You have to be a seeker. I want to know what is my role as a human being? What is my purpose? I need to find out. 
Kim. I was just going to say, I think it's, I mean, what I've been, what I've been listening over the last few weeks and specifically this lesson is, it's not just about reducing or exhausting your desires. You should, for me, I think a spiritual person is someone who's gaining the knowledge, applying the knowledge, but then using that knowledge, not to just exhaust your desires, but change your desires so that you don't have the material desires anymore, if that makes sense. Because, I mean, otherwise, just if I, if I, I don't know, if I like cake and I keep exhausting that desire, or, you know, having something sweet or eating cake, it's not going to help, right? Absolutely right. It's changing it. We've covered it before. It's changing your worldly desires for spiritual desires. Yeah. So you still have desires, but the desires are not gross worldly desires. They're now being converted to more subtle desires. Learning about the truths, as we just said, seeking the truths, finding the truth, pursuing it. So you still have desires, but they're now in a different direction. They're towards the transcendental rather than worldly. That's the difference. Is that okay, Kevin? Yeah, and hopefully those are stronger than the other desires in your big bucket. That's not real with you. As you gain more knowledge, as you understand that the worldly desires will not fulfill you, they're insatiable. They will be tripling, doubling, tripling, quadrupling all the time. There's no end to it. When you understand that, that's when you'll... Uh, so this is a spiritual person. You're absolutely right, Kill, what you're saying. Elimin but, but when we say eliminating desires, we're talking worldly desires, because that's what keeps you in the world. Spiritual desires help you to get out of the world. And that's the difference. So, so the key uh, is not eliminating your desires. The key uh, is developing spiritual desires so they can't react to your, your material desires. Which is what we're doing by learning the subject. Mm -hmm. This is exactly what we're doing. And as you learn this and you convert it into wisdom and you start practicing, you won't be attracted towards the world as much. You will lose that. I remember when I um, joined the ashram, one thing Swamiji told me in my interview, he says, if you begin this course, after you finish this course, you will no longer be interested in business. I warn you now, he told me that. He was absolutely right. So he said, before you decide to join, you will have no more um, interest in business after this. I didn't know what he meant. Because the knowledge converts, it makes you understand that worldly desires are not worth pursuing. There's something higher. You, yeah, Kevin? Okay. Yeah, Phil has a question. Phil, am I right in saying that you ask that because you're saying that even if you go to a temple, and for example, we all go to a temple, I have a temple in my home and I pray every morning. And that prayer that I'm conducting, for what purpose am I praying? So even if for example, we're thinking, surely praying that instills faith and devotion is better for me than me praying for 
something specific. Did everyone hear that? It's still development. Yeah, so what's the point? So, so the question, because it's quite negative yeah. what we're covering, yeah. to think that any practice that I do is just about desires, but actually is so much more than that. Of course it is, yeah. It's developing that subtle thoughts. See, when you pursue this path, not only does it, it's not clear cut as just reducing desires, it's gaining subtle thoughts, thoughts of that reality, that divinity, God, who makes these daffodils bloom? Thoughts of that. Who makes, who, who, who creates these four, um, four different seasons? You know, in India, when it becomes um, rainy season, the day starts raining, every day it rains. When it finishes and summer starts, you don't get a drop of rain for three months. It's only in this country we get like all the weathers in one day, all four seasons in one day. But in India, not a drop of rain until the rainy season comes again. It's so distinctive. Who creates all that? So these subtle thoughts develop in you as you develop spiritually. And once you gain those kind of thoughts, they're much, much more satisfying than any worldly thoughts. You have no interest in worldly thoughts after that. Nothing can compare to those kind of, the satisfaction you get, the happiness and peace you get from those kind of thoughts. It's subtilizing your mind. Is that okay, Kevin? Does that make sense? You're not interested in, it's no comparison, feeling well, fulfilling, that cake is no comparison compared to thinking of that higher. So you may say, you know, I'm talking about this stuff and uh, what proof is there and so on. So, you know, I always come, come up with the Gita here, Bhagavad Gita. So I will recite one verse to confirm what we've just covered. Okay. So it's chapter 7, verse 16, 17, and 18, for people who want to reference. Verse 16, 17, 18, chapter 7. And Krishna says, Chatur Vida Bhajante Maam Jana Sukarati no Juna Arto Jishna Sutta Tati Nyani Chabarata Sabha. O Arjuna, four kinds of virtuous people worship me. The Arta, distressed. The Jidnasu, seeker of knowledge, the Artati, seeker of wealth, and the Nyani, the wise, O Bharata Sabha. So what it's saying is, it's telling Arjuna, it's talking about the different approaches by different people to God. He reveals the limitations of the three popular approaches while subtly encouraging the seeker to pursue the fourth, which alone will elevate him to spiritual enlightenment. Throughout the world, human beings fall under two broad categories, those who seek God and those who do not. 
Rare among the seekers of God are those who truly pursue and reach him. Others approach him merely to gain the selfish ends in this world. The first three approach God to fulfill their physical, mental, and intellectual desires, respectively. Their result orientated. Worship sinks into mere self-interest. Their pursuit ends with achieving their limited goals in the name of religion. The fourth, the true seeker, engages himself in self-oblivious, non-utilitarian worship. He entertains no desire other than discovering his supreme self. It goes on, but just to cover it in a nutshell, what we've just covered, that's all in verse 16 of chapter 7. And that's what Krishna confirms. Any questions? Religion is not meant to cater to your physical, mental, and intellectual desires. It is designed to rehabilitate the inner personality, reconstruct the fallen mind and intellect. The modern mind and intellect have deteriorated to an alarming extent, and they lie dilapidated in spiritual ruins. dilapidated in spiritual ruins. The role of religion is to pull the human race out of the renaissance state it has plunged into. The mind is bereft of all chastity. Human emotions have turned base, vulgar, violent. While the intellect has hit an all-time low, thinking has lost its originality. Reasoning is no longer free and clear. The need of the day is to chasten human emotion, cultivate the art of thinking, strengthen the intellect, educate people on the higher values of life, regenerate their inner personality, guide them inward to recognize the supreme reality that calls for consistent effort in a planned course for evolution. A role that religion is meant to play, the process of true spiritual education is gradual, slow but sure, since its results do not show up immediately, hardly any take to it. People do want to strive and struggle, pay the price for peace and bliss. Instead, Look out for instant relief and remedy. Just one mistake, Ravi. People do, not, people do not want to strive and struggle. You said they do. Oh. People do not want to strive. It's a big difference. Yeah, very big. <laughs> people do not want to strive and struggle and pay the price of peace and bliss. And that's the problem. So what's this paragraph saying? People don't want to put in the effort. They want instant pleasures. Spiritual development takes time, takes effort. You may not see the results immediately, 
could take ages. It's a slow, gradual process. And that's the difference. You know, reaching self-realization could take many lifetimes. No, people don't, they don't want to wait. They want instant pressures. We're used to instant pressures these days. That's the problem. So they lose, they don't want to put in the effort. Yeah. Saying religion shouldn't, it's not made to cater to your physical, mental, intellectual desires. It's made to rehabilitate your inner personality to more subtle thoughts, less worldly thoughts. People's minds and intellects have deteriorated to an alarming extent, dilapidated in spiritual ruins. So the role of religion is to pull the human race out of this state. The mind, there's no control over the mind, says. Bereft of all chastity, there's no control. The mind can ask for anything, do anything, and we cater to it. There's no control to it. So we have to develop the intellect so we can see things for what they are. Any questions? This is the role of religion. Okay, well, it comes to what you are asking. Yeah, to take the mind away from the world to higher. That's what religion is supposed to do by implanting spiritual thoughts, divine thoughts. Cultivate unselfishness. That's the role. Any questions? Arunabin, make sense? Dharmesh, make sense? Okay. So we're going to now talk about two aspects of practices that everyone does nowadays, which is yoga and meditation. We're going to evaluate them and find out what is the purpose of these two. Yeah, we're talking negative religion. Okay, Ravi. The present religious practices the world over are far removed from spiritual education. For generations, people have become ad averse to spiritual study and reflection. None realizes that human beings need specific direction in life and living. All other creatures, save human, have their respective instructions built into their lives by nature. With little choice to live apart from their built-in directives, human beings alone are left with the choice of action either to get involved in the terrestrial or turn towards the transcendental. Again, in the terrestrial field, what is to be done and what not? The same dilemma prevails in the spiritual arena as well. Is one to gain true spiritual knowledge through an authentic course of study and reflection or blindly follow the senseless rituals and ceremonies imposed by religious fanatics. People are totally lost, adhering to some blind faith, 
sheer superstition or routine ritual. These are purposeless practices maintained by spiritual illiterate masses. <coughs> Apart from these, two other fads have been spreading the world over in the name of religion. Yoga asanas, physical exercise and meditation. These are the virtues that have killed the religion, killed the spirit of religion. These are the viruses that have killed the spirit of religion. One word makes all the difference. <laughs> you said virtues. That completely turns the whole paragraph upside down. It's the viruses that have killed the spirit of religion. I mean, so saying, <laughs> the practice of religion helps to lift our personality from the gross worldly thoughts to subtle divine thoughts. This is what we've said. Now, only a human has a choice in life. Animals, as we already discussed, have predetermined life. Their life is predetermined. Only a human has free choice. And you can choose to be a worldly person or a spiritual person. You can choose what spiritual path you want to follow. It's up to you. You have that freedom. Problem is people don't think for themselves. So they blindly follow spiritual practitioners who themselves have no idea about true spirituality. Blind leading the blind. This is the problem. So we do rituals, we do all sorts of things which are not helping spiritually develop. Blind faith, superstitious beliefs, routine rituals. There's no thought behind it. We just do it mechanically. This is what they're saying. And in the last 50, 60 years, people believe the practice of yoga and meditation is being spiritual. They've taken over spiritual practices. They do have a place in spiritual development. They do. But the practice of these alone does not help you become spiritual. You see the difference? Just doing meditation or yoga does not help you spiritually, but they do have a role to play in your spiritual practice. Any questions? Does everyone understand what, was, what is being said? Anita. For example, if you say like we, if you're sitting down and you're meditating, um, it's fine because maybe you feel calm and relaxed. But in only in that time, when you come out of your meditation, you're still where you are in your mind, in the world. Nothing changes until you understand this knowledge. Basically, is that what you're saying? Once again, we'll answer, ask that question at the end. Okay. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay. So we're going to talk about meditation and yoga and where they sit in spiritual development. Yeah? Great.
Next paragraph. These two fadishik practices are simple and easy for teachers to communicate and masses to follow. That makes them even more popular. In sheer ignorance, people take these practices through hereditary or peer pressure. They lack the intellect to steer themselves away from these pressures and observe a disciplined methodic procedure for their spiritual evolution. There's no quick fix. Yeah, you have to put in the effort and go through the practices systematically, scientifically, methodically to develop spiritually. So people are attracted to these two practices because they are easily accessible, relatively easy to practice. Every street, high street has a yoga center now. So it's easily accessible. So what is yoga, asana? What is yoga, asana? We're going to discover that now, Magna. Yoga has a worldwide market today. It has been reduced to mere asanas, physical postures, and pranayama, breathing techniques. These are good exercises which tune up the physical body, no more. But people are led to believe that they are mystical, divine. And the ignorant have accepted yoga asanas and pranayama as a spiritual course. This spiritual merchandise has earned the promoter's wealth, name and fame, while leaving the followers in confusion and chaos. Yoga exercises are gross. They can no doubt shape the gross body, but not the subtle body. The subtle body consists of the mind and intellect. You could build your physical structure through asanas and pranayama, but in no way develop your inner personality. The gross can never control the subtle. It is the law. Mm. Yoga is designed to make your body fit. The different physical postures referred to as asanas is to help tune every part of your body to be at its optimum fitness. See, in the olden days, they didn't have treadmills and uh, what it was the, what is uh, different exercise machines, their bicycles, and they had to deal with yoga, different postures to make them fit. Swimming pools, and they didn't have all those things like we have in the gym these days. So they did yoga. So then, the, you, you do the asanas for, for your different parts of your body to make them more subtle, subtle, subtle and uh, more fitter. Tune your body. And then you do the pranayama, breathing techniques. They help you get oxygen all parts of your body and massage from within. So it's a physical exercise. There's nothing divine about its practice. This is the point we're making. It doesn't develop your inner personality, which is your mind, your intellect. It doesn't do anything for that. But the problem is in some people believe it to be a spiritual practice. So we're just pointing out what it is and what it isn't. So then you're all clear in your minds what yoga is. People sell it, make a lot of money from selling it. 
I myself used to do Bikram yoga. I think 45 postures in a 38 degree heated room is great for my physical well-being. But that's it. If you see the documentary on Netflix on Mr. Bikram himself, you'll see what we're talking about. He was a charlatan. I think he's been, uh, he had to run away from the USA. The law is after him. He's a yoga master, by the way, <laughs> from India. He had to leave the country, cannot go back to the USA. Now, imagine if there's anything spiritual about that. Why would he have to flee the country? What he thought was yoga. You can catch it on Netflix or Amazon. Mr. Bikram Yoga. So that's yoga. We do yoga every morning in the ashram, just to give you an idea. Okay? So there's nothing wrong with doing yoga. We do it every morning. Meditation. Meghna. The second path sweeping the human race is meditation. Meditation has become the bestseller in the world today. Self-appointed religious heads are hawking meditation like Swiss watches and Japanese cars. It has turned into a multi-million dollar business. The innocent masses do not know what they are buying. They are swept away by publicity campaign unaware of the adverse results that meditation can bring about to ill-prepared minds cluttered with desires. The second craze is meditation. Everyone, everyone these days wants to learn meditation. We're not saying there's anything wrong. You sit, you close your eyes, meditate for 15 minutes, helps you relieve the stresses of the day. It performs that, but today it's been marketed. It's, in, it's turned into a business. They give it they, they give it a sense of grandness. If you if you do meditation, you'll reach this goal. You'll do you you'll become like this. Unrealistic goals they give you. Now, the reason people follow meditation is there is something to it. We're going to find out what it is. Any questions, by the way? Okay. Megna. Meditation is specialized training, carefully administered to advanced spiritual practitioners. Yet millions flock to meditation halls without a clue of what it is and the consequence it leads them to. A simple reason for its mass appeal is the initial solace it gives to a novice. It is usually people suffering from stress and strain that take to meditation. A mind with considerable mental agitation is suddenly brought to the thought of divinity. The mind experiences a certain solace, a temporary feeling of peace, which is comforting. As a result, one is led to believe that meditation can directly bring about peace and bliss. Therefore, the practitioner plunges into it more seriously and finds himself losing his mental equilibrium. 
he gradually becomes more agitated, frustrated in life. Few realize where the mistake lies. Some believe that they are not putting in adequate effort. They try, they even try harder and cause themselves great, greater harm. So when you practice meditation, what happens is you're taken away from all your worries and troubles temporarily. You maintain a single thought on divinity. Temporary effect of mental peace and calm. That's what it does. It doesn't lead to spiritual development. This is what it's saying. The sooner you finish the practice and go back to your normal routine, the effects have gone. This is the problem with meditation. The temporary. Myself and Sittal both, we've done the Vipassana 10-day course. I've done it a few times. Some of you may have heard the Vipassana courses. They give you, they take a vow of silence for 10 days. Why vow of silence? So that your mind isn't, your mind is calm. You're not thinking, you're not talking. So your mind is calm. They give you two meals a day and then they teach you meditation. A technique. And every evening there's a discourse. Very insightful, very rewarding. But the problem is the effects don't last for long. You can't replicate that intensity of meditation when you're back home, while you're performing your regular routine. This is the problem. It's a free course, by the way. Anyone want to try, they can try it for 10 days. It's in Herefordshire, there's a few other places. Vipassana, worldwide, they have. And it's incredible what they do. But spiritual development, it doesn't do. Is there any questions? Can we finish this topic? Yep, Kevin. Sorry, I just want to ask, so do we say that it harms a person who's not ready to do meditation because they're doing meditation seeking for permanent results, but they're only getting the temporary results? Is that what we're saying? Yeah, they get frustrated after that. They think they're not putting enough effort in. Okay. So if your mind isn't prepared, it can do adverse damage. You can go crazy. Not, I mean, you know, when you go really plunge deeply into it. You're trying to do something to your mind and your mind's not ready for it. So you can cause that. So we're just going to finish this topic. I know it's uh, 11.30. Is that okay, everyone? Since keep that train uh, line of thought. Okay. The instant effect of peace caused by meditation can be explained by a common phenomenon experienced by people. A metropolitan a businessman is generally infested with worry and anxiety. His mind is agitated with no peace and harmony. He spends sleepless nights in his luxurious mansion. One, on one rare occasion, he joins his family for a picnic to the woods. The wife is organizing a meal the children are chasing butterflies. 
the man rests his head on the protruding root of a tree and falls off to sleep. The very same man who could not sleep on the cushioned mattress in his air-conditioned bedroom. The reason for this phenomenon is that the environment leads to a temporary charm to, disturb, to the disturbed mind. But the effect of the environmental peace does not last long. If, however, he repeats his visits to the same place, he will lose that temporary influence. He will sleep no more. On the contrary, his mind becomes more agitated, frustrated, without the luxury of his home. So it's temporary, this is what he's saying. The mind is for a while taken away from its normal thoughts, its worries and its anxieties. I remember when I went to Vipassana, so there's about 50 odd people, all mixtures of people, mainly a lot of um, English people come there as well. And this one chap, you can see he was a city man. We all have to put our belongings in a locker. Our mobile phones, wallets, whatever. We have to put it away in the locker for 10 days. We can't access it afterwards. So this chap, he puts his mobile phone in the locker and he comes back out and, and he goes, I already feel liberated. <laughs> the mind has become free from the attachment of the phone. He says, I already feel liberated. That's it. The mind is free. For 10 days, he doesn't have to worry about his phone. But after the 10 days, he picks up the phone. Five missed calls, 20 messages. It doesn't take long before he gets back into the same routine again. This is what they're saying about meditation. The environment allows your mind to feel something different. And it's no longer involved in the everyday worries and anxieties. That's what it is. We also meditate in the ashram every day, every evening, after bhajans for five minutes, just to get an experience of it. That's it. Just for five minutes, we meditate. Any questions? So from today's class, you will have some idea of what religion is and what religion isn't. Megna. The effect of meditation on a beginner is just the same. The mind congested with thoughts and desires, worries and anxieties is drawn to one line of thought. It is removed from the congestion of the thoughts for those moments. It experiences a temporary peace. This practice thus lends the charm to an agitated mind. That feeling is lost with repeated attempts at meditation. Some understand its futility and drop the practice, but the ignoramuses are led to believe that the instant relief is a permanent transformation of their personality. They pursue doggedly only to be disappointed and frustrated in their lives. The people wrongly believe that meditation changes their inner personality. We've covered this. This isn't the case. And they keep going depending based because they feel that if they put more effort in, they'll get more rewards, more effort, more rewards. But it doesn't last. This is the problem. Because the mind is not ready. 
There's too many desires. And this is the problem. It's temporary. So we'll wrap up with the last paragraph now. Thus, the general trend everywhere is to abuse religion rather than use it for the redemption of humanity. The unauthentic superstitious practices in the name of religion have taken root because of the temporary solace they produce. People seem content with the ephemeral effects of religion. They do not realize with the effect wearing away, their old nature of stress and strain returns. This resembles a strange phenomenon which occurs in the Himalayan ranges year after year. In winter, when it is biting cold, snakes become cold stricken. A snake lies coiled as if lifeless. For all purpose, it appears dead. People handle it as a rope and the same snake with a little warmth stretches itself. It regains its nature. Similarly, the wrong ways of religion may subdue the desires on, and ego for a while. But the moment the environment and situation turns conducive, the self same, the self spiritual way of life, conducive, the self, same desires and ego rise again to the surface. Hence, the true spiritual way of life is to exterminate the desires, not just subdue them. And extermination of desires alone unveils the supreme self. So spiritual practices has to deal with the grossness of the mind and intellect and its desires. They develop more subtle thoughts, exposes the subtle intellect. What is the role of the subtle intellect? What is the role of the subtle intellect? We have a gross intellect and subtle intellect. What is the role of the subtle intellect? Yeah, Meghna? It allows you to think of the higher power. Gross intellect thinks of the world, subtle intellect thinks of that higher. It, it is the subtle intellect that allows you to think of the higher, Brahman, God. And this is covered with desires. And that's why we have to remove the desires. Because only if you remove the desires, the subtle intellect is exposed. And that allows you to think of God. Why is a person not able to think of God? He's very unspiritual. God, I don't believe in God. No subtle, the subtle intellect has too many desires covered it, covering it. You cannot think of God. So you have to remove the desires. Yoga cannot turn you into a spiritual person because it does not reduce your desires. An unprepared mind cannot meditate and meditation does not reduce your desires. Only the dis disciplines that reduce and remove your desires can help you develop spiritually. Because, as we said in the beginning of class, God equals human minus desires. Any questions? Anita, our question is answered? Thank you. Any other questions? 
Shilabin. Uh, so where does that, you know, they said that 10% of uh, your earnings or whatever money you hold, we need to give to whatever establishment you belong to. Ask the people taking the 10%. Because like we, we discussed earlier that, you know, whenever we go to the temple, we always put uh, uh, some form of uh, monetary fund or whatever, and we're asking for ourselves. But when we, are, uh, when we belong to certain uh, religious uh, practices, they always say, give 10% of your wealth. So it's your dasun. You know, you, you do I understand. Care. I understand what you're asking, but I can't answer your question because you're not giving me ten percent. So I don't know what I, I can't. I don't know how to answer it. <laughs> you have to ask the people that are getting that ten percent why. <laughs> if you're giving it to me, then I can answer that question. And then the other way, a lot of people are the the philanthropist. You know, they they give out their wealth. So. Now that we we are this, we have discussed this, that would be a better, you don't have to give it to a temple or an establishment, you can give it to a homeless person on the street. Absolutely. Yeah. You see, you, ha you have to back whatever you do, your action with knowledge. You see, you've said, why do I have to give 10%? You have to get, gain enough knowledge to understand why you have to do that. Then you understand it, then you can do it, or you can give it to the homeless, you can give it to whoever you want. If you feel that you need to give something to the needy, that has to come from your decision. And it has to conform to your mind and intellect. Why I'm doing this, what am I doing it for, and how much should I do? You have to be in charge of that. Okay. Yeah? It's easy to ask. Give me 10% of you. Why, what are you going to do with it? That is not, you give it, don't ask. Yeah. If that suits you, then you fulfill that. But once you start understanding and gaining knowledge, you will have to ask, why? What for? How does it help me? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Any other clarifications? Dharmesh? Just a reminder that we were going to talk about discussion classes. So my idea was um, that we can, dis let's start a discussion class, um, but I will initially kick start it, okay, and show you the technique of how to discuss. But I would prefer it if you conducted it yourself. You can have the platform, that's not a problem, yeah, um, because it is something, I don't want to be in control of it. You need to discuss it yourself. I'll show you the platform and the routine of how to do it first couple of times and then someone can take control for example you can control it you know how to conduct it is that, is that okay once you have an idea it's easy so this is the way we can do it because what will happen is that I will talk you guys will listen I don't want it to be like that you, you have to discuss it yourself and I'll be there for guidance if you need me is that okay, Dharmesh? So let's kickstart it, see how it goes.
So what day would be suitable for, we have only got Tuesday and Thursday. What day, and we'd probably do it for about 45 minutes in the evening. Whoever's interested, um, we, have, we need only five or six people who are keen to, to do it. Yeah, Damesh? Tuesday's fine with me, 7.30. Okay, for 45 minutes. So who else would be interested in doing small, a group discussion? So we take up a question or we take up a, a concept and we discuss it as a group. So that allows you to um, expand your thinking. And Arunabin, you are you in or are you asking a question? You're in. Okay, so um, let's try it. We have to do this every evening, every evening in the ashram uh, for an hour and 15 minutes, um, but it makes you think. Yeah, and if anyone has questions, um, they can put it on the Sunday group and we'll take that up on the Tuesday, this Tuesday. So 7.30 this Tuesday, 45 minutes. I will show, I'll, we will conduct it together and give you an idea how it works. And then after a few classes, um, I would want you, whoever's interested, to, to do it themselves as a group. And then we can take up the question in, um, on a Sunday or on a Wednesday. Is that okay? The whole idea is to think. Answer, it's not the answer that's uh, necessary, it's the art of thinking. Okay, so we'll do it this Tuesday, 7.30. See how it goes. Like Thank I said, you. half a dozen people is more than enough. Great, any other questions, Kel? So if we do the discussion this Tuesday, do we decide on what the question, sorry, if we do the session on Tuesday, do we decide what the question is on Sunday and then we think about it before or how does, do we have to no. prepare or do we just pitch up and then we discuss it at that point? If there's any concept that is unclear to you and you would like to discuss it more and get other people's opinion and views, then that's how we would work, how it would work. So if you have a question already, you can post it on the Sunday class before Tuesday, or this Tuesday, we can even just take it up ad hoc. It's not a problem. Okay. Yeah? But think about some a question that you want clarity on. Think about a concept that we would like to discuss as a group for this Tuesday. Whatever that may be, it doesn't matter what it is. The art of thinking is what we're trying to develop. Okay. Great. Thank you. Yeah, great. Okay.